I prefer to preach exhortatory and hopefully inspirational homilies because my goal is to elicit change, change in attitude, change in behavior, so that all of us here will give more and more of ourselves to Jesus until we've held nothing back. But I also know that there's a significant group in our parish that prefers academic homilies where you actually learn something interesting, and this is for them. So if you don't like that, enjoy your nap. Attentive readers will notice that our first reading gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's a list of things in our first reading that are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But really attentive readers will notice that in catechism class you were told there are seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, and in the reading today there are only six gifts of the Holy Spirit. What gives? So in our reading, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. A little background here. Isaiah was preaching in Judea at the time of an Assyrian crisis. Jerusalem was under threat, and he is giving people hope that at some point, someday, God is going to save his people. So when he says, on that day, that's an eschatological image. It is an image of the end times will God, when God will win the victory over all. And Jesus himself will use the phrase, on that day. Or in the Gospel of John, the hour is coming when. Another eschatological image. The Jews struggled with the idea that when Jesus came, God's victory wasn't seemingly complete. Jerusalem was still under siege by Rome. It was eventually destroyed. And so they see in Isaiah these prophecies, on that day God will win all these victories. The Christians claim that day came and nothing has changed. The Christians themselves had to struggle with that. And that's why in Advent we look forward to that final day when Jesus will come again. But that's not what we're talking about. Holy Spirit. Seven gifts. In this reading, we have the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. That's six. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord that still sits. The problem is that there are two texts of the Old Testament. One is called the Masoretic Text, and one is called the Septuagint. The Masoretic Text is the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. The Masoretic Text, well, Hebrew is complicated because the letters that you see in Hebrew are consonants, but they don't fill in the vowels. And the words will change a little bit, depending on what vowels you put in there. So, for example, the word Yahweh, the sacred name of God, the Jehovah's Witnesses say is actually translated Jehovah, because they put different vowels in the same word. Okay, so the Masoretic text, with all of its vowel sounds and symbols and everything else, was solidified in the 6th century A.D. So we have a Hebrew text from the 6th century A.D. that really hasn't changed since then. There are arguments that the consonants in there, apart from the vowels, the consonants can go back solidly. We have manuscript evidence all the way to about 135 A.D. Well, that's problematic for a couple of reasons that we'll get into. Septuagint is the Greek text. The Greek text 
is a Greek translation of the original Hebrew that began in about 250 B.C. in Alexandria, Egypt, and continued through about 150 B.C. So we have two texts that exist at the time of Jesus. You have a Masoretic text, and we don't know what that looks like, because we can't trace it back before about 135 A.D. We have a Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, and we have a Greek text, the Septuagint. The reason for that is the Jews in Palestine still used Hebrew, but when Alexander the Great went and conquered all of the Mediterranean world, Greek became the language everywhere, and also the Jews were scattered out of Jerusalem. So you have a huge Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt specifically, but all over the Mediterranean, and they're all speaking Greek, and they've forgotten how to speak Hebrew. So they need this Greek text. So all the Jews outside of Palestine, using a Greek text, all of the Jews in Palestine, using a Hebrew text. Well, these texts don't always agree. So, the Masoretic text as we have it today, solidified in the 6th century AD, the Masoretic text as we have it today has two repeated words in this list of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It has the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord, and its delight shall be the fear of the Lord. The Greek text uses two different words there. It says, a spirit of knowledge and of piety. That's the seventh one, if you've been racking your brain. What's the seventh one? What are missing? It's piety. Spirit of knowledge and of piety, and its delight shall be the fear of the Lord. This causes a ton of problems for biblical scholars. Because what we have to ask, as Christians, is, it is a dogma of our faith that the scriptures are inspired by God. This is the word of God. But which words are the word of God? It's a question we're not supposed to ask. It's a hard one. We are supposed to ask it. We, we are not afraid of truth in the Catholic Church. But it's a hard question. Is the Masoretic text, which is what this translation comes off of, where they use the same word twice, is that the inspired word of God? Is the Septuagint the inspired word of God? There are arguments on both sides. I'm going to give you both of those arguments because this is a learning homily. God spoke to the Hebrews. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So most biblical scholars today will go to the Hebrew text, and they'll say, if there's a conflict between the two, we're going to favor the Hebrew. And that's fair. That's fine. But, but, 135 AD is after the Jews fought with the Christians, and the revisions that happened at that time may have been in opposition to the Christians. Because the Christians were using Septuagint in all of their evangelization. And there were differences between some of the Palestinian texts and the Greek text that the Christians were using to great effect. The Greek text looked very messianic, and the Hebrew text, as we have it today, looks less messianic. And we don't know if it looks less messianic because it is less messianic, or if it's because the Jews, after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, picked the version of the text, because there were multiple versions of the text circulating, picks the version of the text that was less messianic to bolster their arguments with the Christians. We don't know. We only have the texts as they've come to us today. In addition, the Septuagint text is very helpful to us because it could preserve an older version of the Masoretic text. We have versions of the Septuagint that are much older, 
And the Septuagint seems to match what we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a preservation of documents from before 135 AD. So you compare Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls and you compare to the Septuagint text, and I think the Dead Sea Scrolls actually have two words here. Plus, the Septuagint is an authentic interpretation of what people believed at the time. So when you're translating a text, you're making decisions. What does this word mean, and how can I convey that in a new language? The Septuagint actually tells us what Jews in Alexandria in 100 BC thought these texts meant. And then, post the Christians, the texts might have different interpretations because you're responding to the people around you. It's a really fascinating question to have to dive into. Which one is the inspired word of God? Which one is the true version that we're supposed to believe? There are arguments on both sides. And then the church hasn't resolved the question for us. The Eastern churches believe the Septuagint text is the inspired text. Catholic Church, we don't answer that question. We leave it to biblical scholars. But what we do say is that every Bible translation needs to have reference to a third text, which is the Vulgate or, in our case, the Neo-Vulgate. Because Scripture needs interpreted, and because we need an interpreter, and that authentic interpreter is the Church, the Church then translates all of these texts again and gives us a Latin text. And in the Latin text, you can see the decisions that the Church has made on every phrase. So if you have ambiguity in the Hebrew or the Greek, you can go to the Latin and say, oh, this is how the Church interprets that. If a Greek word could mean two things, then let's look at the Latin. Oh, that's where the church went. This all feels like a tangent, but this is a real tangent off of that. A great pet peeve of mine. When Jerome was translating the Vulgate, there's a word that shows up in the New Testament, hyperousion. It's in the Our Father. It's the word that we translate today as daily. But truly, literally, what that means in Greek is beyond substance, hyperousion. So it's super substantial. And so Jerome didn't know, for whatever reason, he also had some reason to think it meant daily. That word doesn't exist anywhere else in any Greek literature. It only exists in the New Testament. So Jerome had to make a decision. Shows up in two Gospels. So he made two decisions. In one of the Gospels, he said, this word means daily. And in the other Gospel, he said, this word means super substantial. Fine, Jerome. Whatever, man. Only been dealing with that for 14, 1500 years. It's fine. All of it is to say, interpreting the Bible is hard. Reading the Bible is hard. Figuring out where the Word of God is is hard. That's why we have biblical scholars. What it comes down to for us is to ask, okay, where can I find truth? Resolving this question matters because we have to find truth. Oh, I'm sorry. One more story, because I think it's just really interesting. Because it's going to come up at Christmas. In the Gospel of Matthew, there is a phrase, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In the Septuagint, that word is clearly virgin. In the, in the Hebrew, that word could mean virgin, it could mean young woman. Not necessarily virginal. St. Matthew quotes the Septuagint. He uses the Greek word, it is virgin. But because modern biblical scholars now are using the Hebrew rather than the Greek, if you go to Isaiah in the most recent version of the Bible published by the U.S. bishops, and you go to that phrase in Isaiah, you will see a young woman will bear a child, not a virgin will bear a child. 
This is problematic, though, because Matthew is also an inspired author. So if Matthew, an inspired author, is quoting the Septuagint, does that mean the Septuagint is the inspired text? Or should we do what the U.S. bishops have done, which is put young woman in Isaiah and virgin in Matthew? I think even in Matthew they changed it to young woman. Blows my mind. Anyway, what are you supposed to do with this? It's fun to talk about this. What are you supposed to do with this? To be perfectly honest with you, this is why God gives us the church. There are a lot of texts out there. There's a lot of ambiguity. There aren't many places where the differences between these texts matters. Does it matter that there are six gifts of the Holy Spirit or seven gifts of the Holy Spirit? Is there a difference between piety and fear of the Lord? Not really. It's not really going to affect the way you live your life and the way you follow Jesus. But it can cause an existential crisis if you have to prove for yourself every truth of the faith. God gives us the church because he didn't want us to get caught up in stuff like this. It's interesting. I find it's helpful in my understanding of God and how he works. I find it changes the way I think about interpretation, I'm sorry, inspiration, and how God can actually inspire this text over generations, not just in one person, but actually as the texts change, he brings us deeper truths. The idea that the Greek is more messianic than the Hebrew is maybe because the Greek was interpreted later than the Hebrew and the spirit was moving in those people. I think it's helpful. But ultimately, we go to the church. God gave us the church, guided and protected by the Holy Spirit, so that we can look to an authentic interpreter. If there's ambiguity, the church, in her wisdom, under the protection of the Holy Spirit, will help us understand what to do with that ambiguity. The church is an incredible gift to us. And the gift of her interpretation, the gift of her authority, is something I'd never want to walk away from. I don't know how our Protestant brothers and sisters solve this problem. I don't even know if they like to look at this problem because it can cause a lot of issues because it causes people to fight. But we're cool with it. Catholics are like, all right, great. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has some gifts. That's fantastic. Finally, I will give you a little bit on the gifts of the Holy Spirit as long as we're talking about them. Because they don't always mean this, and I had to do a lot of word study for this homily, so I might as well give you the knowledge. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, and knowledge all sound like the same thing. Here are the implications of the words. Wisdom, particularly in the Old Testament, is a lived reality. So the gift of the Holy Spirit that is wisdom is how to live a good life, how to enter into these situations with um, lived and tangible wisdom. All the wisdom books are practical wisdom. So the first gift of the Holy Spirit is you are given the ability to live a life in accord with God. Understanding is, the implication of the Greek word is it's kind of making connections between things. And so understanding is understanding how the things of this world relate to each other. It's being able to look at the complexity of the world and cut through that a little bit and have a better understanding of what all of these things are in themselves, what they do and how they relate to each other. It allows you to pierce through chaos and get to simplicity and truth. Counsel is interesting because it's related to the Greek word for planning. So counsel, I always thought was like, I can tell people what to do and like the Holy Spirit will protect me. It's actually a little bit more practical than that. Counsel is, is like wisdom is being able to live a virtuous life where, where your life is 
is shaped in a certain way and you live in a certain way habitually, counsel is more like, okay, I know what to do. I, I can make a plan. I have the ability to make a plan to respond to the will of God. Strength is actually what it means. It's, it's the ability to carry that plan out. One of the commentators I was reading says, wisdom and understanding are intellectual, and then counsel and strength are practical. So the, the Holy Spirit gives you the intellectual gifts, and then he gives you the practical gifts to live those out, the planning and the strength. And then the next three are, three or two, depending on whether you're reading the Greek or the Hebrew, the next couple are um, based on God. So knowledge is esoteric knowledge. Understanding is understanding the world, knowledge of the world. But knowledge is the ability to get at the truth of God, to have that elevated reality. Piety, the Greek word there, not the Hebrew, because the Hebrew is a repeat. But piety is um, it's the Greek word that starts with E-U, uh, which is like eulogy or um, the, the word for gospel is euangelion. It's something that's good or elevated. So piety means good worship. It's, it's elevated worship. It's the ability to worship God well. And then fear of the Lord, it actually is the Greek word for fear. We like to try to explain this word away where it's like, oh, it means something else. No, it is the word you use for like running from a spider, right? Like that's, that's the word there. But somehow it's fear of the Lord. Being in the presence of the Lord is really scary. And knowing that and appreciating how big he is and how grand he is, that's a gift. It's a gift to be able to do that, to know that we should have an appropriate, truly fear of the Lord, even as he approaches us with love and mercy. I tell you that because each of you has received the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your baptism and strengthening your confirmation. If you need any of those things, they are given to you. Again, whether it's the Greek or the Hebrew, you have them. If you live them out, as John the Baptist says, Christ is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, if you live them out, you will be purified by the Holy Spirit. That fire of the Lord will purify you. And in that purification, you will be able to grow closer and closer to Jesus every day.